Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Sound in Motion. My name is Peter Naughton, and today we'll be uh, talking about the 1996 Minnesota masterpiece, Fargo. Uh, this is directed by Joel Cohen, written by his brother Ethan Cohen, and with music by Carter Burwell. If you need a little refresher, if you've never seen this movie before, I'll just do a quick bare-bones rundown of the movie. Uh, it's about a car salesman in Minneapolis named Jerry Lundegaard, who arranges to have his wife kidnapped so he can collect a big ransom from his rich father-in-law. But things turn ugly when the criminals he hired to carry out the deed end up, uh, they kill a state trooper and two innocent folks just passing by. Uh, it's a pretty dark story, but you know, with the Coen brothers, they do a really nice job of putting kind of a dark uh, comedic spin on it. I should probably also mention that Jerry actually really needs this money. They don't really specify what his, uh, his money problems are. I think I've seen people speculate that it's gambling or something, but I actually think the, the ambiguity is better. All we know is he needs this money, and he's in a very tight spot right now. You're darn tootin'. This is like one of my favorite movies of all time. Because uh, I, I remember seeing this when I was like 13, maybe 14. It was on TV all the time. And uh, it, was, it was a great feeling. Of, like this is another kind of gateway into you know, the grown-up movies realm. Uh, at the time, I don't think I really understood what all was going on in the movie outside of the plot. But I just thought that it was so funny. Yeah, we both did. She went to college, too. I went to Normandale for about a year and a half. Yeah, that's where we met. But I dropped out, though. Yeah, she dropped. Yeah. So where are you girls from? Chaska. Lesueur. But I went to high school in White Bear Lake. Go Bears. Like, you know, between the accents and the drab production design. Also, like, there's such an abundance of food in the movie, and that made me laugh for some reason, too. I don't know why, but uh, it's, it's a really kind of offbeat, funny movie. It's a movie that I come back to pretty regularly, and I think I walk away each time with a new appreciation for certain elements of it. Like, I loved the score even the first time I heard it, but you know, having studied music for quite some time now, uh, I can really appreciate all these little elements at play. I, I think the, the Coen brothers are probably my favorite filmmakers. I, don't, I mean, I don't like to you know, rank filmmakers or anything, just like I don't rank musicians or composers, but I, I think I have a really personal connection to their movies in a way that I don't quite have with a lot of other filmmakers' works. Like, they just really speak to me personally, you know. And there's so much to cover about them, so I'm not going to do a big deep dive or anything on them, especially since their works, they tell you everything you need to know about them. But I will just say a couple things about them as they relate to Fargo. Uh, I really respect their interest in telling a uh, like a geographical story. You look at all their movies, and th those stories are so kind of inseparable from where they're set. Uh, like Big Lebowski and Los Angeles, uh, No Country for Old Men in Texas, or uh, you know Blood Simple in Texas, uh, Lewin Davis in Brooklyn, Oh Brother Where Art Thou in Mississippi, uh, etc., etc. And, of course, it's no different for Fargo, um, doubly so since they were both raised in Minnesota. And you can tell that they're not making fun of Minnesotans in, like, a mean-spirited way. 
they just they really understand this area and its culture, its social practices and whatnot. And that's where you start to get a really good, strong story, I think. When you can draw connections between place or culture and then the plot points of the movie, that's when you have the makings for a rich and rewarding story. It's also kind of nice that they just let the viewers like reach their own conclusions about these characters and their culture on, on their own. Like They're not hitting you over the head with tons of background information. You know, there's no narration. There's no backstory prologue about uh, the Scandinavians. Uh, they just present these characters and their environments as is, and they let us connect the dots. Uh, just one more thing. Uh, I really love how they subvert audience expectations, but they're not like hitting you over the head with it. Um, subverting expectations, that's become kind of a buzzy phrase in and of itself lately. Like Some movies seem to be marketed almost entirely on that concept nowadays. But I think that they're a really great example of this, because like, Okay, Fargo. It's a crime movie, yes, but, like, you don't have any uh, hard-boiled detectives. You have Marge Gunderson and her partner, Lou, and they're just, like, pleasant and friendly and, like, kind of naive in a way. Um, you don't have the brilliant villain mastermind. You have Jerry Lundegaard, who is just a ball of anxiety and panic. You don't have these unflinching assassins. You have two in <laughs> two inept doofuses with uh, Carl Showalter and uh, Gare Grimsrud. Uh, and they're both brilliantly played by Steve Buscemi and uh, Peter Stormare. I really like those characters because, like, at least in the beginning of the movie, when they're driving uh, to the Twin Cities, it's like they're like an old married couple just, like, <laughs> arguing in the car. Like, uh... Would it kill you to say something? I did. No. It's the first thing you've said in the last four hours. Or like when they're they're in the cabin and it's just like they like Steve Buscemi is just bickering over and over and over and Peter Stormare just looks so checked out. It's like a really kind of odd spin on the you know, husband wife dynamic that we're used to, right? Uh, and then of course it, their characters turn horrendously dark. <laughs> So yeah, I guess that kind of brings us to the music, um, and then composer Carter Burwell. And he's been collaborating with the Coen brothers pretty much, I think, since their first movie, uh, Blood Simple, back in, I want to say, 1984. And I think he scored all but, like, two or three of their movies. He's, like, the perfect person to score their movies. Like, I, I mean, I think he's one of the most unique composers working in the film industry right now and at least with the coen brothers he seems to really understand the types of ideas they're looking to convey and then you know from his perspective it's like okay how do i convey that idea musically you know do i want to double down on that particular idea they're presenting or should i juxtapose this funny moment in the movie with like really dramatic heavy music you know he he, he really knows how to get to those points i think and for Fargo, this is a score that functions pretty differently than your typical mainstream blockbuster. Like, in the first episode of, uh, of the, the podcast, we were talking about John Williams and Jurassic Park, and that's a killer score. But, I mean, it's a very functional score. Like, it does a lot of heavy lifting for that movie to work as well as it does. You know, like, we talked about the pacing of the movie and how it's so kind of central to that. But here, the score is less about how it functions and more so how it kind of reflects a lot of the ideas that are in the movie, right? 
it's also just a reflection of the characters, I think, and sort of their their place in this universe, you know. So let's dig in a little bit. Um, the most recognizable piece of music is actually a Norwegian folk song, uh, and it's called The Lost Sheep. Uh, and it pops up quite a bit throughout the movie, and it's usually orchestrated differently each time, even just like some subtle differences too. Um, but yeah, it's like you always get different iterations of it, which is kind of nice. I mean, even in the very first scene, we hear it three times, and each time has a different or fuller orchestration. The first time is a like really delicate little duo between harp and celeste. And if you're not sure what a celeste is, uh, it's kind of like a piano, but the hammers actually hit metal bars instead of the strings like you would in a piano, right? It's kind of like a music box sound. Like, uh, think about Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, right? That's a celeste. And then the second iteration is this gorgeous feature for, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, called a Hardanger fiddle. Like, that's the American or English pronunciation. Uh, but the Norwegian pronunciation, I think, is Hardinger, and I don't want to end up with any egg on my face, so I'm just going to call it the fiddle <laughs> for the rest of this. So, But I just, I love this sound so much, and it, it somehow manages to be both robust and fragile. Like, it's just such a tender performance, too. Like, it's something precious, right? And the third iteration is the full orchestra. And it's almost like a fanfare, but it just, it still feels so sad. because, I mean, I'm a percussionist and I hear these kinds of things, but I love the sleigh bells that on beats two and four of each measure. Like, it's just a nice little wintry sound, right? But back to that fiddle, because um, you can't n not notice these beautiful shimmers that come from the instrument. And it's kind of a different design, I think, than a regular violin. Like, you think about your traditional violin that you would see in an orchestra. It has four strings, right? And this fiddle has anywhere from like seven to nine strings. I think it's eight or nine strings. Um, and it's also, I think, a much thinner kind of uh, wood. Like the wood is much thinner. Uh, and I'm guessing that's probably what gives it that really kind of uh, thin sound overall. 
So you have four strings which extend across the instrument like a regular violin, and then the rest of the strings are located underneath, and those strings are like really resonant. Um, and that, again, that's where you get these like kind of almost, it's like a wailing sound almost, right? And uh, I actually looked this up, and it's the same kind of fiddle that, um, if you're familiar with the Lord of the Rings score, um, Howard Shore used this for the, uh, the Rohan theme. Uh, so that's, they both have that kind of, that folky sound to them. It's just such a fragile and sweet sound, and it's a nice little musical reflection of the pain and sadness that you know, these characters inflict or have to endure, or in Jerry's case, both. So yeah, that's the, um, that's the, the little folk melody there. Um, and I like that it's a folk song. It really kind of has a strong sense of history to it. Again, just going back to that sort of geographical representation in this story. Um, and then there's this uh, really kind of high-pitched descending riff that appears pretty frequently throughout the movie. Like, even the first time I saw this, that, that little riff always made me think of the environment. You know, it's just so cold and desolate and just endless snow. And it, it, the music just sounds cold, right? Like uh, that, that little descending line, it sounds like wind howling almost. Uh, <laughs> it's beautiful, but it's just so sad. And it, it's almost kind of like a lament in and of itself, right? But yeah, it just it really gives a strong sense of geographical feel you know i mentioned earlier i'm a percussionist and I, I really love the percussion in this movie because it's just it's so kind of unique to this movie like there's a lot of interesting kind of scoring ideas in the percussion that i would not have sort of arrived at on my own and i'll get into this more when we actually talk about orchestrators and carter burwell's feelings on that because it's kind of interesting and i've always been a bit curious about the composer-orchestrator relationship. But um, anyway, yeah, it's like, what I like is that he takes these relatively plain or, I guess, common Western orchestral instruments. Uh, you have snare drum, bass drum, cymbals, triangles, uh, timpani, and then I think you actually do hear some claves in there, which is kind of nice. Uh, but yeah, he takes these kind of plain instruments, and he doesn't try and spruce them up or anything. Um, it's, he just kind of presents them as is, and the way that he kind of works them against each other, or they like they really complement each other, you know. I don't know. I just like that, uh, you know. You think percussion, and your instinct is just think big, loud, huge drums. But it can really just be about color and and mood. Like that nighttime highway scene, uh, which is just so unsettling from beginning to end. It has some really nice percussion in there. You just hear these very kind of non-invasive instruments uh, until they eventually kind of creep up on you. Especially when uh, Garrett Grimsred is driving the car to catch up to the, the, the drivers. Uh, it's just so nerve-wracking with the sort of like quietly unrelenting percussion. 
and it also just makes really nice use of range like these high string sustains and then the low strings but there's also this gong in there that's really low resonant gong that alone makes the situation feel so confined and claustrophobic and there's shaker in there and it just it just keeps going and it really ratchets up the tension in that scene it's like a ticking clock you know and just a couple other quick things like there's some really punchy brass notes in here uh they're just so aggressive but there's a lot of like really like half step dissonances just crammed together and it's just there's really rich color and and he uses those uh brass stings to kind of contrast really heavy moments with like an immediate sort of punchline uh and it's really nice how he does that that's like again how how do you walk that tightrope of tone where it's like do i play it funny or do i play it dramatically you know Carter Burwell actually has some interesting notes on this score. Not much, but I, I like what he talks about. Because, again, he talks about, like, if you play it seriously, does it undermine the comedy? Or if you play it comedically, does that undercut the drama? So he talks about how his solution is to go, like, almost overboard into melodrama territory. Like, the ultra-seriousness of moments juxtaposed with the sort of kind of funny banality of the moment or just like the Minnesota nice, it actually, that makes the whole thing funnier, right? It works so well. Again, because he, he really understands the Coen brothers' thought process and, and how they're going to present things visually. And he even makes a, a note of the fact that he wanted to use really fragile instruments through most of the score. Like, you have the harp, the celeste, the fiddle, uh, just like these really kind of delicate sounds. And that actually underscores a couple of bigger ideas in the movie, you know, the, the fragility of Jerry, the character, the fragility of life in general, uh, the fragility of this community. This is interesting, too, because he has some notes about working with an orchestrator. Um, I wasn't aware of this, but this is the first time he did not use an orchestrator, and he just orchestrated the score himself. And orchestration can mean quite a few different things depending on the composer and the film. Like, to use John Williams for an example here, uh, he uses an orchestrator, but at that point, I think the orchestrator is more so in charge of, like, almost like just making parts, which is really about determining the number of players on each part. Like, we need X number of violin one, X number of violin two, four trombones, three flutes, whatever, you know. Uh, John Williams is actually extremely uh, meticulous in his uh, notes that he has in the scores. It's, it's interesting to, to look at. On the flip side, other composers, they essentially just come up with like the bare bones skeleton of the music, melody, harmony, and rhythm. And then they leave it up to the orchestrator to just flesh out the rest of it. But in regards to Carter Burwell, I think that's why there are such interesting colors here. Like my understanding is that He's got his feet in a lot of different artistic ponds, which is pretty cool. Like, I think he does dance and theater commissions. Uh, I think at one point he was playing with, like, an experimental punk rock group. Uh, he does music for stage productions, I think. So 
he's definitely looking at film scoring from a very different perspective, which is just a nice kind of breath of fresh air, I think. But his notes uh, on working with an orchestrator, they're not negative, really, but it's more, he, he mostly just points to the fact that having an orchestrator can sometimes feel like having a co-composer at times. So at that point, it definitely feels like he wanted to have more control over his own compositional ideas and decisions. But Fargo seems like a good movie to do your own orchestration for the first time. Like, you know, it's kind of a small-scale thing. Uh, the music is very thin and fragile, but, you know, he can really emphasize certain colors that he wants to hear, rather than leaving that decision up to an orchestrator. So yeah, I'm actually really interested in how the music fits into some of the broader ideas at play in the movie, or just really in the movie in general. Um, and I've kind of thought about this a little bit, but uh, it again, we go back to the geography of it all, and the music is just a really nice reflection of the Scandinavian community at large, and also just the individual characters themselves. Scandinavians, and particularly Norwegians, I think, they came here to farm, and they intentionally kept their communities very tight, and or at least they wanted to. And that makes sense, you know. Winters in the Midwest, they're hard, and at that time they were especially hard. The stakes were so high, it was like a life-and-death matter. You can't allow the, the fabric of your community to be torn or it could endanger everyone. So you take that concept and then you put that unique Coen Brothers spin on it. And the fabric that could potentially be torn is the community, yes, but in this case it's also like a moral fabric. Uh, the Coens, they, they have such like strict moralistic views in a lot of their movies, like it's, there's like cosmic judgment for certain characters. And I think that definitely applies to Jerry here. And it also applies to Marge, I think. Um, I mean, this is like, I don't know, kind of a dorky point, but they, the Coen brothers really treat this story like it's a battle between good and evil. Like, you look at the character, like, Marge. I should mention, this is a fantastic performance by Frances McDormand. And she's like the perfect stand-in for the concept of good. But you watch her, and you can see how, like, difficult it is to be a force of goodness. I mean, she leads such a simple lifestyle, and she and her husband, Norm, they don't have any form of avarice. They're not prideful. They're just content to be content. They don't have a flashy house, flashy clothes, any of that. They're not vain people. They're content. They understand what it takes to be happy within their community and just as people, you know. And then Jerry is kind of the opposite. You know, he's not a straightforward person. You know, he's always lying and evading. He doesn't know how to stand up for himself. He doesn't know how to accrue any sort of respect, both for himself as a businessman or as a father. But of course, he doesn't deserve any respect because he's not a person worthy of respect. And yet, I kind of love that you still have some level of sympathy for him because his concerns feel very real. And that's partly the writing, but yeah, it's also the, that pitch-perfect performance you get from William H. Macy. But anyway, I mean, you think about how perfectly that Norwegian folk song fits, right? The Lost Sheep. It's a lament for Jerry in the beginning, and really a lament for his transgressions. Like, Marge isn't introduced until 30 minutes into the movie, and at that point, we hear The Lost Sheep again. Uh, and here, I mean, personally, I feel like it functions less as a lament, and maybe more so as a cry for help, like... Uh, like, she's the shepherd <laughs> to save the flock, maybe? Uh, maybe. But, like, okay, 
where do we first see Jerry? It's the opening shot. He's driving to make the <laughs> kidnapping arrangements with the criminals. And it's just so bleak and cold and miserable. Right, Jerry is straying from the flock. By contrast, how do we meet Marge? Well, it's early in the morning, again, bitterly cold. But that's okay because we're inside. You know, Marge and Norm, they're tucked into bed. They're safe and sound. We get a little glimpse of their room. We see Norm's mallard paintings. It's a far stretch from luxury, but it's such a great symbol of their contentment. And hey, you know, Marge literally gets a call in her first scene about the triple murder. Again, like the lost sheep in this case is a cry for help for the shepherd. <laughs> but I guess in this case, it's more about the shepherd protecting her flock from the transgressors, like Jerry and those two criminals, rather than trying to herd them back. But I mean, beyond that sort of nitpicky uh, analysis, if you will, I, I, it's just such a great structural indicator too. this folk song. It's one of the really noticeable elements of this movie is that we don't really meet our actual hero until 30 minutes in. And that's fine as it is, but again, the use of the lost sheep to signify Jerry's and Marge's roles as good versus evil, it's such a little subtle touch, right? And at the very end of the movie, we hear it played on a celeste, I think just solo celeste, when Marge and Norm are, you know, they're tucked in, safe and sound. It's just so intimate. It's terrific. I'm so proud of you, Norm. Heck, Norm, you know, we're doing pretty good. I love you, Margie. I love you, Norm. I also do want to take some time to just talk a little bit about the look of the film because it's it's so gorgeous. Uh, the cinematography by the absolute master Roger Deakins. Uh, on my latest viewing of the movie, I listened to his commentary track with it. I mean, I've seen this movie so many times, you know, but uh, I wanted to kind of get his perspective on it. It's very illuminating in what he's looking for as a director of photography, but. Also, it's just very pleasant to hear uh, about his concerns, which are like, things you would never really think about. Um, but the, like, the point he hammers home more than anything else is that it was a low-budget movie. I think it was a budget of $7 million, uh, which is quite low even back in 1996. And they had to essentially shoot with a ton of limitations. But in this case, it's clear that the limitations actually work in its favor. He also uh, brings up pretty frequently that it's a... It, it's a very observational way of shooting. Like, you watch this movie and you notice the camera is pretty consistently locked down. Like, it's not flashy or overly active. It's not doing a ton of movement or anything. It just kind of captures these events in a very objective way. Like, there's really nice use of over-the-shoulder shots. Again, it gives it that, like, kind of very pedestrian, real feeling. Almost like you as an audience member are eavesdropping on these conversations. Like, you're catching real people in a moment of vulnerability. And a great example uh, is Jerry, you know, when he's prepping himself to call his father-in-law about his wife being kidnapped. And the camera just delicately tracks from behind the staircase railing. It's almost like as an audience member, you're spying or something, and you're getting this little glimpse into a very real inner turmoil. It's simple stuff like that, and it's just so effective. I also do want to point out the production design, because everything just looks so banal, almost like kind of drab. Um, a lot of it is very tacky, like the house decorations and stuff like that. 
and especially by today's kind of more minimalist decor aesthetics, right? But just the, the plainness of the shots, it really gels perfectly with that Midwesternness of it all. The banality in general just seems to be kind of an underwriting theme of the whole thing. But anyway, back to the photography, because there are some pretty stunning shots in here, and I like that they don't stick out or draw attention to themselves. They just, they're just so beautifully constructed. Like that nighttime highway scene with the uh, state trooper, it's like, it just feels like so dreadful. And it has everything to do with the stark lighting and, and the framing of it. Well, the music too, of course. But, uh, you know, they, they get pulled over by the trooper and the trooper's headlights are just beaming into their car. And it just, it feels so claustrophobic that way. Because, you know, there's like no other lights on the road. It's pitch black except for these car, the, uh, the car lights just beaming in there. And then at the end of that scene, you get those brutal red taillights, like really saturated. And it's just, it feels so intense. And red and white as a, like a color contrast, those, they appear everywhere in this movie. Uh, it's like uh, red and white. It's like the purity of their community has a blood stain on it. You know, it's a nice little detail like that. Another thing that I really like and kind of sticks out to me is how uh, Roger Deakins visually conveys that Jerry has no power or respect in any situation he's in. He's almost always framed in a position of weakness, like the opening scene. It's two against one, right? At the dinner table that night, uh, his son and his father-in-law, they have absolutely no respect for him. And then later in the movie, he has to go into his father-in-law's office you know, he shows up and there's no chair for him. So he has to sit on the arm of, of a chair that's like facing the other way. It's just really awkward posture. And on top of that, he's also in a weakened position because it's another kind of two against one confrontation. So he really has no power there. And then immediately following that, there's that shot of him walking back to his car in the middle of this desolate snow-covered parking lot. And again, just a stunning shot, probably the most famous shot from this movie, but it really kind of underscores his isolation and it's like a bird's eye view. So it has kind of like, again, this sort of cosmic judgment element to it. And you contrast that with Marge and her scenes with other people. The blocking is always so much more like open. Like she's an open and straightforward person. You know, she disarms people with her directness and her kindness. And she's also like seven months pregnant. And I think unwittingly she uses that to disarm people too. And you know, it's the, Mind if I sit down, I'm carrying quite a load, you know. Yeah, I don't really have too much to say about this um, beyond what I've already said. It's, again, it's a movie that really speaks for itself. And I think, you know, unlike a movie like Jurassic Park, where it's like scene by scene, the score is really important. Again, this is more, it kind of is just an artistic form that exists. It like coexists with the visual elements, with the written elements with the performances, they all gel together really well. I feel like this is one of those movies that I could just talk about all day. There's just like so much artistry to appreciate. I, I love that the level of collaboration is so apparent when you watch it, right? The direction, the writing, the music, the photography, the performances, you really get a sense that these are actual artists practicing a craft that they've worked so hard to perfect. And that's not to say that other movies don't have that effect, of course not, but a lot of times with these huge blockbusters that come out now, so much of it just feels like they're 
audience tested and market research to the point where there's almost no authorial intent to begin with. And, you know, this movie may not be to everyone's taste, but that's okay. It doesn't have to appeal to everyone. And it's a stronger piece of art because of that. This is a story that all of the artists involved wanted to tell in their own way. I just think that's so much more interesting and important than, like, precisely calculating which elements will appeal to the biggest audience possible. It's not to say that box office success isn't important, of course it is, but I mean when you look at the budget for this movie, seven million, well I guess probably a little bit more when you include marketing, but it made like 60 million at the box office, which is not an insanely huge success, but it is absolutely a success. And when you look at the budgets for all these huge blockbusters nowadays, they're enormous. Like. I think 200 million for uh, like one of those Marvel movies is basically standard at this point. And then you factor in the marketing costs and everything else, and you're looking at almost half a billion dollars. That is immense pressure at the box office. So now it's like every movie needs to make close to a billion dollars to be considered a success. And of course, COVID has changed the current situation quite a bit, but I think the larger point does still, still stand. When you're so dependent on huge box office returns, it makes it so much harder for smaller, like quirkier movies like this to get made, and more importantly, get a wide release. But anyway, I should probably wrap up the score discussion of this too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, there's not much to say beyond what I've already mentioned. I just, the score is so special, and that, I mean, that little Norwegian folk song just gets stuck in my head every time I watch this, and it just it just plays in my head over and over and over. I sing it, I hum it all the time. It's so beautiful. But yeah, I mean, kind of like what I was mentioning earlier, the score just fits so nicely into all these little elements in the movie. Like, it's moody, and it like kind of has this environmental effect at work, but again, it underscores some of the larger thematic ideas about community and you know, history and and good versus evil <laughs> it really is just like the perfect sound for this sort of um, geographical representation it's also just a really nice showcase for carter burwell's thought process in general but like it's also a really good little feature for his unique or uh, orchestrational ideas i mean it's the first movie he orchestrated himself that's pretty impressive and it just shows that you don't need to follow any sort of like formula or equation to make the score work for your movie i think it's important for projects like this to have that sort of artistic collaboration where everyone can bring their unique spin on it to the table and then you end up with a really great product like Fargo I mean again it may not be to your taste that's fine but no other movie feels like this one but anyway I think that uh, pretty much wraps up what I was uh, hoping to talk about today so thank you all for tuning in again um so we're up on uh, Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so wherever you're listening to this, uh, please go ahead and give it uh, a high rating, the five stars, whatever. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, too. I'd really appreciate that. And, um, yeah, you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. Just uh, look up Sound in Motion. Uh, you'll be able to find me. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I think that just about does it. So thanks again for tuning in, and uh, I'll catch you next time. All right, take care.